0: Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, uh, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. Thanks.
1: The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 16, 13-14, and Mark 12, 28-31. The word of God speaks to us. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This is God's word to us.
0: Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Uh If we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew, I get to serve as one of our pastors here. It's great to have you this morning. uh Hey, I want to say if you're with us today and uh, maybe you've got questions about Jesus, the church, uh maybe even some of our what we would call our liturgical moments, these prayers that we're all praying together. uh man, I just want to say all of that is is on the table. You don't have to like check your questions in at the door and then come in. We really want to meet you and process where you're at, why we do the things that we do as a church. So it's really good to be with you today. Uh, even if you're wrestling and you're like, I don't know where I'm at with this whole Jesus thing, that's okay too. We're really glad that you're here. Uh, I'm excited about today, but a couple of things that I want to jump into before we get into our text is uh, just by way of announcement. So the first is two weeks ago, we, we talked about how our facility is a little bit in need of some TLC and some moving some stuff around. We wanted to do some stuff with our kids' space to make it a little bit more safe and more hospitable. <clears throat> we also wanted to do some stuff with our lobby area to make it more welcoming. And then also, our staff team here uh, just needed a permanent office space, which we've not had since getting into this building. So it's not something that we Talk a lot about it's not something that we ever really are asking needs of. But two weeks ago, we just said, Hey, somebody generously gave us 12 grand, and we're asking for 12,000 more dollars so that we can do some work around here that needs to be done. We know we're never going to look like the building across the street, Uh, that's okay. We just want to not have a dumpy tin can building forever, you know, like we want to take care of our part of the city. So um, man, I just want to announce to you guys that you guys generously gave uh, not just the 12 grand, but above and beyond that. So thank you so much to that. We reached our goal. Uh, It's okay to clap and celebrate that by the way. Yeah. Um, So big thank you. You're going to start to see a few other things shift and adjust as a result of that. If you didn't get a chance to throw in and you want to, Trust me, we could still put it to use. It's not like uh, 12 grand is like, whoo, what are we gonna do with all this money? Um, it's like, yeah, that's, that's like bare minimum what we needed and, and we got more than we needed uh, for that specific project. But man, there's just a lot going on here that we could use that for. So don't, don't feel like you, you have to bow out if you have some money that you've set aside and wanna give. If you're not a part of this church, don't give. Just be here, show up, drink the coffee, ask questions. We're glad you're with us. Um, So just wanted to announce that. Hey, two other things real quickly as we jump in. The first, by way of intro into uh, what we're talking about today, is I just have this pastoral burden for our church that I want to share with you, which is anytime you find a place of resistance in your soul, anytime you find a place of resistance in your heart, it's almost always a place where God the Father wants to uniquely meet. A few weeks ago, I had somebody say to me, as we've leaned into this masculine uh, virtue series, and we're really talking about some stuff that's hard and controversial and heavy, and our goal isn't to be controversial. We're trying to be faithful. We're trying to help and lead the church that God has called us to lead. But I had somebody say, I bet you're getting a lot of angry emails after the sermon I preached two weeks ago. And, um, And then I think somebody said that to me again last week. I bet you're getting a lot of angry emails. And I just wanna say, actually, no. I've received zero angry emails. And here's why. I think there are two reasons why that's the case. The first is I actually think that we're speaking into something that our church desperately needs. And the conversations that I've heard from many of you, the emails that I have gotten, the text messages, the phone calls the comments have been overwhelmingly positive. I've had men come up to me. I've had women email me, just talk about how beneficial this has been for them uh, to to shape them, to offer repentance in some ways, to give them a better vision for uh, how to live as men and then ladies to like figure out how to help your brothers or help your sons or your husband. So it's been overwhelmingly positive and I just wanna celebrate God's grace for what he's doing and the way that he's deepening us and the way that he's growing us as a church. And the second reason I don't think I'm getting angry emails is because people don't do that anymore. People don't do that anymore. Uh, th- th- I get a lot of emails, but very, very little angry emails. Ten years ago, uh, I would preach sermons, and maybe it's because I was a terrible preacher. Maybe that was why. But when my soul would go dark on Sunday night, which is you know sadly a more common reality than I'd like to believe... When my soul would go dark, I would pull up my phone and I would read my email, and then I wouldn't be able to sleep. I was like, oh my gosh, they hated everything I said, and it would just be an inbox full of like, well, you said this, and I didn't like it, and this was done, and this bothered me, and people don't do that anymore, and here's why. People do four things that are not sending angry emails. They gossip, so they have issues, but it comes out in really unhealthy ways, or they stuff it, they have issues, and they don't know how to deal with the resistance that they feel, so they just stuff it. And it kind of creates and builds up more narratives over time. Or three, what they do is they post it on social media. Because what's better than sending a private email? Just post it on social media so everybody can read it. And then the fourth thing that people do is over time, they get so bothered without having any conversation or meeting their resistance with, with any sort of help that they just quietly disappear. And I'm just asking you as your pastor to not do one of those four things. I'm asking you like, where you have resistance, if you have resistance, where this has bothered you, where this has brought up concern, where this has been hard, where this has been frustrating. You, no one's going to be mad at you for you not believing everything that we say or you wrestling with this or you having questions. No one's gonna be mad about that. Just talk to us. So I'm, I'm just on behalf of our team and our elders, I'm saying, put us to work, man. Set up meetings. Like We, we literally are here to do this. We wanna care for you. We wanna process. And most of the time, this will be it and I'll be done. Most of the time, the resistance actually has very little to do with theology and doctrine. It's usually more personal. It's something that's happened in the past or something that's been done to you or an experience with a dad or something that you're carrying about your unique story. And I just want to say, God, loves you and wants to meet you there, and no one's mad at you for having resistance. I just don't want you to miss out and be defensive and hear everything through that lens. Like, God the Father wants to meet you in your places of resistance. Amen? Okay. Uh, the, the, the last thing I'll say as I jump into this sermon is this is my least favorite way to preach. It's my least favorite way to preach. I love to take books of the Bible and work our way through books of the Bible. That's why we do uh, the way we do preaching as a church. Next week, we will be back in 1 Corinthians. Some of you are like, praise be to God. Uh, Well, just wait until you read it, and maybe you you will be less excited. But we're gonna work our way through 1 Corinthians, verse by verse, and I love that because you get to see where we get our ideas. You get to check our math, and you get to see the context, and it just really kind of lets the main theme of that text be the main theme of our day as we gather around the Word of God. Today's different and I feel slightly uncomfortable with it. It's my least favorite way to preach because I'm throwing a smattering of text your way and and I'm not really showing you my math. And I'm not, what what I'm really trying to do is take 1 Corinthians 16 and use this as a biblical framework to build out a theology specifically for men where it says uh, that we're called to to stand on guard and to stand firm in the faith. How do we do that? How do we be watchmen and stand firm in the faith? That line, act like men, what does that mean? And then today, the line that we're gonna be dissecting is this line, let all that you do be done in love. And so I'm not trying to read into the text something that's not there, but I do wanna try to offer you a biblical framework of the love of God and how we respond to the love of God and then how we, as men and women, build our lives around the love of God. So with that in mind, let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. And what I have to offer today, it's not special. Your word is special. Your voice is what we need to hear. So I'm just asking, would you move today? Would you shape us by your word? We wanna be people who more and more look less like our world and our culture and more like your unique kingdom. And I don't know how to do that. You have to do that work. So would you come and would you move? And my, my biggest prayer today is that for those in the room that, have gone months and months and months without encountering your specific love for them, that they would encounter your love today. And then teach us how to build our lives around your love. So whatever we're carrying, wherever we need to be met, wherever there's resistance in my heart or the hearts in the room to your word, we just offer ourselves to you. We need you and we love you. Thank you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine for me a little bit of a morbid thought. Imagine that your house is on fire, right? So good morning. Your house is on fire. Uh, Family's safe. Pets are safe. After all those necessities are safe, what do you grab? If you could run back into the home and grab one or two things, what would you grab? Isn't that interesting to think about? And I bet you if we could go around the room and just share, there would be some really unique stories of like, I'd grab this, and it would tell us a lot about you. It would tell us about what you love. It would tell us about what you value. It would tell us about what matters most to you. I, for me, I would grab a couple of things. I would grab, uh, there's a box of love letters that my wife and I have, and this has survived a tornado. This has survived like all the, the moves that we've made. We have these box of letters where anytime we write anything, even if it's like, I'm praying for your day this morning, we put it in that box, uh, birthday letters, anything like that. And so that's like, that, that would be something I would grab that is irreplaceable. I can't get that back if a fire burns up our house. I would also run in and grab, I was given a 30-30 Winchester rifle when I turned 13 because I'm from Choctaw, Oklahoma, and that's what we do in Choctaw. Uh, my, my dad gave me this rifle when I was 13, and the whole idea was like, hey, this rifle is powerful. This rifle has the potential to bring harm. This rifle can destroy and kill, but this rifle can also protect. This rifle can also Uh, get life and provide food, all right, this is my dad's speech, and he said, your masculinity is the same way. You can bring harm, you can destroy, you can kill, or you can use your strength to bless and to provide and protect, right? So I'd grab that because I, I can't get that back, and if I can go buy any other Winchester, but I can't get that back, right? So what would you grab if a fire was burning in your home? What are the things that matter most? Jesus is being asked a similar question in Mark chapter 12, He's being asked a similar question, not about a house fire and what he would grab, but more specifically about the law of God. And out of all the laws, out of all the things that God has said and commanded his people, the people of Israel to do in the Old Testament, what is the thing that stands above all else? What's the one that matters the most? And what he points to is really, really interesting. So with me, Mark 12, look at verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. This is uh, a moment where Jesus is in the temple. Religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus in what he's saying, asking him questions to make him look dumb, trying to get Jesus canceled because they are fearful of the leadership that he's bringing to uh, the people of Israel. They're They're worried about losing their own power and significance. So the scribe is watching this interaction between religious leaders and Jesus and it goes on and says, Seeing that he answered them well, the scribe asked Jesus, Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, scribes are like one part theologian, and they're one part lawyer. There's 613 laws in the Old Testament, and these guys were supposed to be the people that were experts in the law. So if you needed justice mitigated between you and a neighbor, if you were trying to figure out God's heart behind something, you would go to a scribe, and they were supposed to be experts on the law that could mitigate between right and wrong, good and evil, and adjudicate different matters. And so this guy's curious, like out of all the 613 laws, there's like 365 positive, I'm sorry, negative commands, don't do this. And there's 248 positive commands, do this and live this way. Which is the most important one? And this is a clarifying question for Jesus. He has to answer wisely. And what he does is he actually points to something that in many ways, Is the nutshell law, if you can do this law, if you can obey this one command, then all the other commands are sort of uh, find their home, if you will, in this one command. So look at what Jesus says in response. Verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Three things I want you to see today. The first is this. It's the call to love. The call to love God. Now, here's what's really interesting about this. This is a command uh, from Deuteronomy chapter six. It's known as the Shema. The Shema uh, means to hear. It's hear, O Israel, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this for ancient Jewish people was sort of like their version of, of the Lord's prayer for you and I. They would pray the Shema in the morning They would pray the Shema in the evening. They built their life around the Shema. And the whole idea of the Shema is God is one. He's He's the authority. There's no other God but the God of the Bible, Yahweh. And he deserves our ultimate allegiance. He deserves our ultimate affection and our ultimate love. The people of Israel were built as people around the love of God alone as ultimate and as the authority. And they're called to love this God with everything in them. Now here's what's really fascinating. This command to love God doesn't even show up until Deuteronomy chapter six. If you're familiar with your Bible, there's a lot of biblical history and narrative before Deuteronomy six, and this command doesn't even show up to love God until Deuteronomy chapter six. And here's the point that I just want you to see before we move on real quickly, is that our call to love is a responsive love to God that we're not just called to love God and like muster up our affection for God, but actually remember, this was the God of love who uniquely chose Abraham. When Abraham was a pagan guy in the wilderness worshiping the moon and the sun and the stars, God shows up to that guy who doesn't love God, wants nothing to do with God, and God says, I love you, and I'm choosing you. And I want to adopt you as my unique son and bring you into my family. And then from Abraham, the, the people of Israel become a nation. And then they find themselves in Egypt and bondage and slavery under harsh, uh, cruel taskmasters and Pharaoh and oppression and all these issues. And God comes to his unique people who are in bondage and slavery, and he fights for them. He redeems them. He brings them out of slavery. They, they cross over from death to life, the Red Sea, and he brings them to Mount Sinai and And at Mount Sinai, he gives them his law as his unique people. And after all of his love, his affection, his choosing, his adoption, and bringing them out of their slavery, out of all of that, he then says, now respond back to my love. Friends, our love for God is realizing that well before we ever loved God, when we were floating in the ocean of our own sin and had drowned in our death, it was his love that reached down and made our hearts come back alive. We, we wanted nothing to do with him, and yet his eyes and his gaze were fixed on us. And he chose us, and he adopted us, and Jesus, without asking uh, what we thought about it or getting our permission, left heaven and came to this earth and lived the life that we should have lived laid his life down for us on the cross, rose again from the dead so that we could be made whole, so that we could be forgiven, so that shame could be lifted, and so that our whole world one day would be remade and the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. How do we not respond with love to that God, right? That's the first thing I want you to see is, yeah, we're called to love God, but actually our our love for God finds its foundation, its root in his love for us first. In addition to that, the call to love is a holistic love. I love what Jesus says here. He says in verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God, how? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Growing up in church, I kind of read that as like, you should love the Lord a lot, or as one of my aunts says, a ho-ho lot, right? You should love the Lord a lot, and just he's piling on the different words to talk about how much we should love God. That's actually not what he's saying. He's saying, love God holistically, not a, in a disintegrated approach, but love God with every part and faculty of your being. So, your heart, because God is relational, you and I are called to love Him with affection and desire and devotion, delight, the emotional center of who you are. Some of you, that makes you uncomfortable if it's like hey love god with your brain you're like check got it i like to read big books i like to study and i like to think deeply about god but you're actually called to love god with emotion that's why like we're a we're a charismatic church not crazy, insane, like flopping around like trout fish, you know, on the dock, charismatic, but like charismatic in the sense of we believe in the ongoing activity of the Holy Spirit. We believe that all the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still active and available today. We want to not just think deeply about God, we wanna feel deeply about God. We wanna sing songs that celebrate God. When we get to that confession and assurance moment and it says, thanks be to God, like that's our cue to go ballistic because why would we not go ballistic over the love that he's offered us, right? Love him with your heart, your your emotional center, your affection, your desire, because God is worthy of that. Our soul. We want to love God with our soul because God is the end for which we were created. So this is the depths of our being. This is the core of our essence, the place we find ultimate meaning and identity and purpose. Your soul, loving him with your soul. We want to love him with our mind because God is true. We don't want to just feel deeply about God and then like think incorrectly about God. We want to think right things about him. We want to be concerned with truth. We want to uh, love learning and intelligence and comprehension and learn to love God with the brains and the intelligence that he's given us. And then finally, strength, because God is holy and he cares deeply about our actions. We want to love God physically with our bodies with our sexuality, with what I do with my eyeballs, with what I do with my hands and my feet, what I do with the physical things that God has placed me over, holiness, holiness habits, efforts, behaviors. We wanna love God holistically. So friends, I wish I could just pause here and just talk about the different denominations and the different church traditions that have taken one of these things and built their entire church denomination or tradition off of that one thing to the obvious neglect of the three other things. We don't have time. The point is that we're called not towards disintegrated love for God, but a love for God that's holistic, that touches every part of who we are. And then finally, the last thing I want you to see here on this call to love is that this call to love God necessarily leads to love for neighbor. Notice what Jesus says in verse 31. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, there is no other commandment greater than these. Now, how many commands was Jesus asked about? Just one. What's the greatest? And I love Jesus. He doesn't get put in a box. He's like, what's the greatest commandment? The greatest two are these. And he gives two commandments. Why? This is a profound answer because what he is saying is that it's actually an impossibility to truly have love for God that doesn't then affect the way that we treat our neighbors and then Jesus is gonna expand it and go on and say, even our enemies. That if we really love God, we will love neighbor and we will love even our enemies, whether they're political or whether it's whatever, Fill in the blank, whatever enemy you have in your life. Like love for God truly leads to love for the people in your life. And, and it's not that loving people is the same as loving God. They're not enmeshed in that sense. But if you really do love God, you will really love people which is why I always get concerned with pastors that grow older and grumpier. It's like, we should be growing older and happier and more, joy, more joyful and more loving, amen? If you see Christians that are getting old and they're like not good wine that doesn't age well, that's not good Christianity. We wanna be Christians that age well, amen? We wanna be Christians that like grow in joy, grow in delight, grow in love and affection for God, yes, but also that people around you are just like, man, he loves people really well or she loves really well. That's the goal. So that's point one. Point one's done, right? The call to love. Now, here's the thing. I know that that's sort of basic. Like, if you're new to church, you're not like, wow, I never have even considered loving God as an option for Christians, you know? Like, you know this to be true. This is not anything that you've not heard before, but it leads to the second thing I want you to see, which is the threats to our love, the threats to our love. Uh, l- let me tell you a, a brief story. This will feel like a little bit of a turn, but it's connected. In the 6th century BC, Babylon attacked Jerusalem. So Babylon comes into Jerusalem. Babylon at the time is the leading foreign power, the, 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 the strongest nation on the planet. And this nation goes to tiny little Israel, ransacks the temple, totally desecrates it, captures a ton of Israelites, and brings them back into Babylon specifically to live there as exiles. Now what happens next is really, really fascinating. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the planet at the time, the king of Babylon specifically grabs teenage boys who are in the line of royalty in Israel, and he brings those boys into his palace. What he does with these teenage boys is fascinating. He essentially starts this campaign to totally rob them of their unique Israelite identity and to create them as Babylonians, to recreate them, if you will, as Babylonians. And he does it with a number of different uh, strategies. Strategy one is he takes their unique Hebrew names that point to Yahweh God, changes their name and gives them Babylonian names that point to Babylonian gods. Right? He then uh, sets them up on a diet of food and wine that goes against the unique dietary restrictive laws that uh, Jew- Jews had in Israel. And he says, don't eat the way that Jews eat anymore. Eat the way that we eat. Drink the way that we drink. And then he gives them literature to read and things to study that doesn't involve the Torah or the Old Testament or anything about the law of God and loving God and anything like that. It's like, hey, read this and intake this and do this. And so do you see what he's doing here? This is so strategic. And Nebuchadnezzar's mind is, if you win the young men, you win the whole nation. If we can get the young men of Israel, then we can flip all of Israel. And if I can take these Israelite young teenage boys and turn them into good Babylonians, then they're gonna eat themselves from the inside out and they'll just embrace our whole way of life altogether. Now with that, it's fascinating, isn't it? But four young boys stand out. You may have heard of them. Four young boys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now other than Daniel, we know these boys actually better with their Babylonian names than we do with their Hebrew names. It's Daniel or Belteshazzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, what's fascinating about these boys is that as young teenagers, they're in the middle of the belly of the beast, if you will, in Babylon, and they somehow stand up and say, no, we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna eat the way that you want us to eat. We're not gonna bow down to the God that you tell us to bow down to. We're going to do things very, very differently. And actually what God does through their decision to stand up to the most powerful enemy, the most powerful nation on the planet, the most powerful king, even at the threat of getting thrown into the fiery furnace, which they do get thrown in there, even at the threat of losing their own life, they are standing up and saying, we are going to love God alone. We're going to be resilient in love. We're going to be resilient in building our lives not around the love of Babylonian culture, but around the love of God himself. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? They don't escape Babylon, they don't leave Babylon, and they don't even rail against Babylon as much as they live inside of Babylon as a faithful presence of devoted love to God. Now, here's why I bring that random story up, because when we think about the threats to our loves, specifically this call, the essence of Christianity to respond to God's love with love for God, and love for neighbor, and love for enemy. Here's what's fascinating, friends. You and I live inside of what's been called digital Babylon. I didn't coin that term. That comes from David Kinneman, the president from Barna Research Group, but he coined this phrase, digital Babylon, as a way to describe where you and I find ourselves today in our cultural moment. Digital Babylon is interesting because Babylon in itself is a real place in the Bible that functions as a metaphor for any place that's opposed to God. That's how it shows up in the book of Revelation. Babylon is any place that you find yourself in that is actively opposed to God and his way. And David Kinnaman says digital Babylon basically has three elements to it. Number one, unlimited access. Our phones, internet, social media, streaming platforms all of that, we are so tapped in. We have unlimited access to anything that we wanna have access to, right? The second thing that digital Babylon is marked by is profound alienation. So on the one hand, we're the most connected we've ever been, but on the other hand, we're actually the most disconnected as a culture that we've ever been. And then the third thing he says is that it's marked by a crisis of authority and identity. Nobody is standing up and saying, Here's how you treat people who are over you. In fact, we're actually told to tear down authority structures and no one is standing up and saying, here's who you are as a man. Here's who you are as a woman. Here's who you are as a Christian. Here's your identity. Here's your purpose. Here's your telos, if you will. Here's why you exist. Here's why God made you. Here's why he placed you here. No one's giving us any sort of identity and we have no idea what to do with authority. And I've said this, I've said this so many times, I'm sure you're sick of hearing it, but here's the truth, friends. Babylon, digital Babylon, has a profound effect on your loves. In fact, what I would say is that your day-to-day lifestyle, 24-7 access to all these things, has a shaping and disordered effect on your love for God, your view of neighbor, and even your view of your enemy. That it's totally affecting the way that we live. And actually what happens over time is, as we just kind of go through the lazy river of our culture, is that we start to look more like our culture than we do like the kingdom of God. We actually start to love what people who are far from God love. We, we desire what they desire. We look just like our friends next door that aren't followers of Jesus. There's really no difference in their vision of the good life and our vision of the good life. And so here's the question, friends. How do we stand in that tension of being called to love God, to build our life around the love of God while we live inside of digital Babylon that's actively waging war against our souls? I mean, just think about the spiritual input of your life and my life versus the digital input of digital Babylon. Even using conservative estimates, the typical person consumes nearly 20 times more hours of screen-driven media than they take in spiritual content. And it's a little bit better for consistent churchgoers, as in people who attend church twice a month or more, but it's still pretty bad. 10 times more hours of screen-driven media Than spiritual content. So just think with me for a minute. What does it do to the soul of a Christian when you go to bed having watched soft porn on Netflix? You wake up and reach for your phone first thing to flip through Twitter to find news headlines that are catered to your specific uh, political perspective already so you can continue the echo chamber. Then you go to work and you scroll through Instagram wishing for a different life. And then you come home and you do it all over again, day after day after day after day. I'm not asking, is that right or wrong? I'm saying, who are we becoming as we live the way that we live? Digital Babylon is threatening my love and your love. My ability to receive the love of God and my ability to respond to his love and my ability to love my neighbor and even love my enemy. Because everything about our culture says, destroy your enemy, hate your enemy, cancel your enemy. How do we be people of love in this culture? And remember, we're hearing all of this with the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 16 hanging over in the background where he says, be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. How do we let all that we do be done in love inside of this culture? One of my favorite verses in Daniel is in chapter one, it's very simple, I'll read it to you. It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Brothers and sisters, there is a need for you and for me to resolve, to just stand up and say, no, we're gonna build our life on the love of God. And that leads to the third and final thing I want you to see, which is the call to cultivate and protect love. The call to cultivate, cultivate and protect love. Now, I, I, I understand, and I just want to make this point, that everything I'm saying applies to men and women and children, the old among us, the young among us. Uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this applies to you as an invitation of what it looks like to, to put your life and bank your hope in Jesus. If you're following Jesus, th- this all applies to you, right? But I just want to say that there is a unique need in our cultural moment for men to stand up in, in their masculinity, actually offer love for God and love for people in a way that they are receiving the garden that God has given them to cultivate and protect like Adam in the garden. We get our garden, our sphere of influence, our family, our friendships, our roommates, our wives, our children, our whatever, and we take this garden and we say, I am going to stand up and cultivate and protect love for God and love for neighbor. In 15 years of ministry, I've sat down with so many people who for sure have mom wounds um, and have issues with mom and all of that, that's for sure there. I've got those, you've got those, unless you are parented by the most perfect parent ever, which doesn't exist. We all have wounds from mom. But what's fascinating is as I've sat down with people, just in 15 years, just anecdotally, what I've noticed is that masculine love is so powerful that in its absence it's so profoundly damaging it affects entire families and generations. My dad was never told that he was loved by his dad. And some of the struggles that I have today come from my dad learning how to just even verbalize, I love you, which he did all the time. He was an amazing dad. But that has a profound effect on a man and on a family and on entire generations. And likewise, masculine love is so profoundly powerful That when men stand in the love of God and when they offer love and blessing and protection to those around them, they cultivate and protect love, it has lasting impact on generations. It's profound and it's needed. There's a a verse in Psalm 123 that more and more as I get older is becoming my ultimate desire. Like I'm okay with being a mediocre pastor. Some of you are like, you're doing great. Yeah, I know. Uh, I'm okay with being a mediocre preacher. Like I'm okay with like no one knowing who I am. I'm, I'm okay with like the church never growing or maybe, you know, decreasing and all that. I want to do my best. I want to try hard. I want to be a faithful pastor. I want all of that for sure, but I'm okay with like being mediocre as a pastor, but more and more and more what I want for my life, my vision is found in Psalm 123. And it describes this man who is like a tree That offers shade to those in his life. Listen to this man who fears God. It says, Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. I was talking to my wife last night. the grandma took the kids, so we, were, we had no kids. And we we're like, let's go out. We never get to do that. You know? We're like, let's go out on the town. So last night we went out for drinks and burgers and we were hanging out and, and we just got to talking of like, what would it look like to get a vision as grandma and grandpa one day, whatever I might be called. I'm currently called Poppy by Tyler Lindsay's son, which I'm like, I think Poppy works. I'll stick with Poppy. But when I'm Poppy or Papa or whatever I'm gonna be, what, what do I want? What's the vision? And more and more what I want is to actually have a life that's been faithful, fearing God, building my life on the love of God so much so that my kids and their kids, when they have a major decision to make in life, when they've got a problem that they don't know what to do with, when they've got crisis happening, when there's something major going on in their life, like I've got to sit down with him because he's built his life around the love of God and he can help. Do you have a man in your family like that? Some of you do, but it is so rare is so rare. What would it look like if us as brothers, we said with Daniel, no, no, we live in digital Babylon, but we're going to build our lives on the love of God so that those in our life, whether we're married or not, whether we have kids or not, receive the shade of our love and our blessing. That's the vision of masculinity. I want to invite you and call you into that. How do we do it? I want to close with some really practical things that hopefully will just help you take a start of taking the first week and the second week with this week and getting a vision for how you can build some of this into your life. In John 11, I'm sorry, in John 15, nine through 11, here's what Jesus says. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And we could just stop there and just celebrate that, right? Like the Father's love for the Son is the same love that you and I have today being just given to us? Unbelievable, unbelievable. And then Jesus says these words. He says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The the big idea here is that the Christian life is not a passive life that Jesus in John 15 in the first 11 verses uses the word abide 10 times. Abide, abide, abide in Christ, abide in me, abide in me as I've abided in my Father, abide in my love. So brothers and sisters, our call is to abide in the love of God. To literally, it means to make your home in God and in his love. Justin Whitmall Early in his amazing book, Habits of the Household, says the most Christian way to think about our households is that they are little schools of love. Think about that line. Places where we have one vocation, one calling to form all who live here into lovers of God and neighbor. So how do we form schools of love? This is true women and men, so hear this wherever you find yourself. But men, how do we stand up like this young man, Daniel, and his three other friends and take responsibility and say, no, enough is enough. We're going to build a school of love. How do we do it? Let me just give you a couple of quick things. Number one, embrace the fact that love, both for God and for others, can actually be cultivated. Our culture has no vision of this. For them, love is something that lands on you. We fall in love, we fall out of love. Love is a feeling, love is love. So you kind of just love, and then when you don't love, you find somebody else to love, right? But in Christian context, love is primarily about the self-sacrifice of yourself for the good of another person. And ultimately, that love can be cultivated. It can grow or decrease, It can expand or be diminished based on how we care for and cultivate our love. So I just want you to get a vision for your love for God can be cultivated. Did you know that? And you know this because your love for your hobbies gets cultivated. The more you research, the more you study, the more you invest, the more your love and devotion to that hobby increases. What does it look like to get a vision for cultivating your love for God? Number two, do a time and a habit audit. Take what I said in week one and what Pastor Kevin Colley said last week, and then just think about your life. And I want to invite you to do a time and a habit audit. All of us have habits, whether they're intentional or not, that your day typically looks the same, right? You come home and you do the certain similar things from day to day. So I just want to invite you to pause. And if you're married, maybe do this with your wife. If you're single, maybe do this with a close friend that knows you well and process and just kind of figure out like, what does my day currently look like? Do a time and a habit audit. What are the intentional and unintentional activities that you find yourself just giving yourself to? Number three, start small, but start cultivating. Start small. And I have to say start small because sometimes when you and I get a vision for like getting our life together as Christians and building our lives on the love of God, sometimes we're like, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to read all of it in like four days. And it's like, don't, don't do that. Just read your Bible like a few times a week, you know, to go from not reading at all to reading like three times a week is an amazing win. Some of us are not reading our Bibles at all. If you went from zero to three, it'd be like, praise God. That's, a, that's like, just do that. Some of you are like, I don't know what to read. I don't know how to, just get help. Well, I'll get to that in a minute. But tap in other people, just start small. Don't try to go from like, you know, I heard a comedian say uh, his biggest frustration when he looks at workout videos, he's like, does the before guy have a video? Because that's more my speed, you know? And so some of us are like, you don't need to do the like, the after video. Like You need the before guy video, and that's okay. Like, find out where you are and start small. And that leads me to the fourth thing, subtraction, not addition. The whole point is not to add more busyness and more stress into your life. My point is that you already live a certain way. What would it look like to subtract things that are disordering your loves or not actively cultivating your love for God and love for neighbor? And what would it look like to actually add in some mechanisms, some patterns, some ways of living that will help you learn to love? Number five, take into account your season of life and stage of discipleship. Seasons are different, man. Like, summer is not the same as winter, and that's true of your Christian life as well. Sometimes you're in a winter season, and you you need to Factor that in with how you build your rhythms and your habits in your life. Some of you ladies, you just had a, a little baby and you're like, I feel so guilty for not reading my Bible. Trust me, Jesus in heaven is not ashamed of you right now. He is not like, I can't believe she's not reading her Bible. I mean, she pushed a human out. How can she not read her Bible? It's like, that's, you had a baby and your life is disrupted. Grace to you, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. Like embrace your season of life for what it is. My wife and I have opened up our home over the last three months to uh, two different people and our rhythms have just looked different. It's not the same. It's been a little bit more busy and and things have been changing and in flux. And so now, now that they're out of our house, we're like, how do we rebuild healthy rhythms, right? So take into account your season of life and stage of discipleship. Number six, keep a healthy balance between upstream and downstream practices. I'm stealing this from another Pastor John Mark Comer, he had this really helpful uh, stuff that he's written on upstream practices being those ways of following Jesus that are harder for us and downstream practices being those ways of following Jesus that just come more naturally and are easier. Imagine paddling upstream versus kind of floating on the river downstream, and he's saying, life with Jesus, we ultimately need to fill it with a lot of downstream practices and a few upstream practices. For some of us, reading our Bibles is really hard. Especially like in January and February and March when you're on a Bible reading plan and you're like, ah, I'm gonna wake up early and encounter the living God and have my soul filled with affection for Jesus. And, and then you read like seven chapters on skin diseases in Leviticus. And you're like, I don't feel close to God right now. I'm just, I, I feel like I need to schedule a dermatologist appointment or something. I'm, I'm like itchy reading Leviticus, you know? Like, I get it, it's hard. Some of you reading your Bibles just like, I don't even know where to start that's okay. We can help you, but you need to figure out like, what are the easy things with following Jesus? And just fill your world with those. And then have a few things that you're like, this is work. This takes practice. This takes time. This takes intentionality. And then finally, number seven, get help from other men and from other women in community. Man, Frontline has worked hard to develop some counterformation modules We've kind of said this is what we're going to be about as a church is counterformation because we need to be formed as the unique people of God if we're going to be able to ever love God, love people, and push back darkness. So, how do we do this? So, maybe it's like reaching out and getting some of our resources on counterformation. Maybe it's getting into a community group or a discipleship group, finding men and women who are further down the field than you are, and just saying, Will you help me figure out how I can build my life on the love of God? Friends, uh, the business world has this saying that gets said over and over and over that I think we need to grapple with. Your system is perfectly designed to give you the results that you're getting. Your system is perfectly designed to give you the results that you're getting. When you apply that to your life with Jesus, your love, your marriage, your singleness, your struggles with sexuality, whatever it might be, when you apply that to your life, I just want to ask you, like, What is the system telling you? Today is an invitation to just stand up and say, by God's grace, I'm gonna build my life on the love of God. Would you stand with me? We've been talking about the greatest command. The greatest command is human love for God. You will not find a command in scripture more significant, more important than human love for God. But friends, while that's the greatest command, that is not the greatest truth. The greatest truth is God's love for humans. And if you hear nothing else I say, hear this. You have a Father in heaven who is not ashamed of you, who loves you, and has loved you before you were even born. You are not a mistake. You are not an accident you were wired and made uniquely the way that you are by him. And before you were ever a thought to your parents, his love has been on you. His gaze has been looking for you. He has been trying to track you down. He's like this. There's a poem called The Hound of Heaven talking about the relentless pursuit of God for humanity. He is the hound of heaven. He's coming after you. There's ways that we've drifted. There's ways that we've neglected him. There's ways that we've, we've disobeyed. Maybe you're here today and you're not even a follower of Jesus. All I want you to know is like, God's been pursuing you this whole time through all the ups and the downs, through all the challenges in life, through all the stuff that you're currently like trying to figure out and wrestle with. He loves you. And the evidence, the greatest proof is of his love, as, as Augustine said, like the pulpit of the love of God is the cross of Christ where his body was broken, his blood was shed for you and I. His love for us is not to crush us, it's not to condemn us, it's not to shame us, it's not to point out all of our failures and then send us away. His love for us was ultimately expressed that he hung there in our place. He's forgiven us. He rose again from the dead to give us his Holy Spirit. So if you're hearing all of this today and you're like, I I don't have what it takes, Of course you don't have what it takes. And anybody who says that on Facebook doesn't know what the heck they're talking about. You don't have what it takes. But the Holy Spirit has been gifted to you so that you can carry out a life of love for God and love for neighbor. And today, I just wanna invite you to come and receive his love in a fresh way. Receive his love in a way that changes your heart so that you can love him and love others and be a man or be a woman who stands firm, rooted in the love of
1: God.